Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, beginning verse 7. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Perhaps in no parable is Jesus more severe than in this parable. George Buttrick says that this parable proclaims only half a truth. And he calls the statement of Jesus in the 12th chapter, verse 37, this parable's twin brother with a happier face. Now I want to read that statement in that he calls the twin brother with a happier face in the 12th chapter, verse 37, is what it says. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This parable is twin brother with a happier face. Now it may be that the parable I've read for the text is half a truth, but it is the truth. And it points out one of the big problems that we have as Christians, and that is that we take our discipleship too lightly. And it is a caution concerning the flippancy with which we approach our relationship with Him. He is our master, and we are His slaves. Now, we have no way to identify with that because we're not familiar with slavery. We talk about servants, but the word is doulos, and it is a term that refers to absolute slavery. We have no way to identify with that. What he is describing as is a master and his slave who is his absolute property, has no possessions, has no rights, and whose whole matter of life and death and everything pertaining to it is at the absolute disposal of his master. He's talking about absolute authority. And he's saying that This is our relationship. We are, but as it were, animated instruments in the hand of the master without any rights of our own at all. Now that is not all there is to our relationship with God. Thank God for that. But it is in our relationship to God. Now that's the matter of this parable. That's what he's saying. There is a message in every parable, one message, and that's the message. However, I'm not through. There are some implications of that. If we use the 
terminology of the 90s, we'd call it spins. There are some spins, some implications of that fact which he's pointing out in this parable. One implication is, is that, that, do, that uh, debt is impossible. It would be impossible for us to ever put God in our debt regardless of what we did. I have a feeling that there's kind of an attitude among some of us that God owes us something. And some of us can identify with the parable of the prodigal son, not with the prodigal son. Most of us have never gone off and squandered our life and wild living. Most of us. Uh, some of you might have to confess to that. But, but I suppose about all of us can identify with the elder the elder brother, the prodigal's brother, who when he heard the celebration concerning his brother's return, he went in, he said this, he said, now wait a minute here. I've been faithful to you all my life. I've been loyal. I've served faithfully without question. I haven't gone off on some lame brain trip and wasted my inheritance, your property. Nobody has given me a robe. Nobody's put a ring on my finger. Nobody's killed a fatted calf for me. In other words, Dad, you owe me something. I got a bulletin for you. God owes us nothing. We owe Him everything. You talk about living in the red. You talk about deficit economy. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away is all that I can do. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. And Isaiah said, if you took all the trees out of the famed forests of Lebanon and all of the beasts in those forests as a sacrifice, it would be an unworthy offering. It would be an unacceptable sacrifice for what he's done for us. You know what's wrong with the parable of the prodigal's elder brother? This is what's wrong with it. He had access to the father's closet, everything in the closet all the time. He had access to the father's jewelry box and the calves in every stall, and he's whining about the fact he didn't get a robe or a ring or shoes. A few years ago, we took our two oldest children. I've already cleared this with those parties involved. <laughs> took our oldest children on with us to uh, St. Louis to the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, they were anxious to hear all those preachers, and we wanted to take them. And we, 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 you know, we don't normally take vacations as a family. That, we don't do it enough. We don't do that much. But we decided while they were you know, young, we'd take them on a, on, our, on a vacation with us. We're going to take the convention in in St. Louis and make it a family vacation. We got, we got us a, some stuff to see what all went on in St. Louis, and we made our plans. When we got there, we decided we'd go fishing. They had, a, they had one of these trout fishing places, you know, the poor fish. They were in this little bitty pond and uh, hungry, evidently, because you just throw something in there and they swarm to it, like shooting fish in a barrel. You know. So we got out there and they gave us a pole and hooks and even baited them. We tossed them in there, and a the fish darted for it. And we, they charge you by the inch, you know, the fish you catch. I think we'll catch you about two, four inches, and then we'll be out of here. Well, about, about the time we got started good, it came up this 
terrible thunderstorm, lightning and thundering and storm rolled in. So they, they closed down the fishing place, gave us our money back. Well, I'm telling my kids, now we'll go back before we leave St. Louis. We'll go back to the fishing place and finish our fishing part of our trip. Easiest fishing I've ever done. So we went to the Gateway Arch, you know, in there in St. Louis, went up in the top of that, took a boat ride down the Mississippi, went out to Bush Stadium and watched the Cardinals play. We just did it all. Got a hotel, not one of these, we'll leave the light on for you kind. I mean, we got us a big hotel, had an indoor swimming pool. We just went, we shot the works. Well, at the end of the uh, convention, we headed home, back to West Texas. We'd been to everything. We'd been to the Arch. We've been to Bush Stadium. We've been to the best hotel in town. And uh, we just did it all except we didn't go back to the fishing hole. On the way out of town, about 10 miles out of St. Louis, I heard this whimpering in the back seat. <laughs> I said, what's happening here? What's going on? Heard this little whimpering voice. We didn't get to go fishing. <laughs> I was saying, come on now, give me a break. We've been... Nice hotel, Gateway Arch. We've been to the Bush Stadium. We've, we've done everything. And they said, but Dad, you promised we'd go fishing. So I pulled off the side of the road, and I lost it right there. I said, come, I, I said now, now, come on here. I said, I don't think I owe you a thing after all that we Now, I felt a little bad about that after we got on down the road. I kind of got to feel a little guilty about that, but I, I kind of have a feeling that's, that's how God must feel. I mean, come on, give me a break, he must be thinking. What do I owe you? Nothing. That is impossible. Duty is insufficient. Now I want you to notice the deeper meaning in verse 9. Look at this of uh, this text that I've read, chapter 17. Look at it. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And he's letting us in on a little clue here, something we already know, and it's what we already know, that churches are filled with people who are willing to do the requirement, the commandment, and that's all. And we say, well, I've kept the law. Well, the law is the irreducible minimum. I mean, it's the least amount one should do, commanded the commandment. And the churches are filled with people who say, well, what am I expected to do? Tell me the, the bottom line. What is the least amount required? And I'll still be respectable. I mean, tell me what is the minimum thing required? You know the, you know the questions, don't you? Like, do you tithe before taxes or after taxes? And so Bishop uh, Marshall talks about what, we, what he calls decaffeinated religion. He said, folks want a decaffeinated religion. That is, some, a kind of religion won't keep you up at night. And somebody put it in a little song. He said, I want three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or to keep me awake at night. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God 
to cause me to love a black man or pick beets with a migrant worker. It's ecstasy I want, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want eternal life in a little paper sack. Give me about $3 worth of God. Give me about enough just so I can get by. When we moved to Fort Worth to go to the seminary, we, I had a church out edge of town, out 50 miles away on the edge of town. It's the edge of nowhere, but 50 miles away. And we thought, well, we better find a place to go on Wednesday night to prayer meeting. Now, prayer meeting is what we do on Wednesday nights. A little subtle dig there. And we were looking for a place where we could go on Wednesday night, and so we were driving around in the neighborhood and saw a little church. And we thought, well, this would be a good place, close to our house. We'd go here on Wednesday nights. And we pulled up there to find out what time the services were on Wednesday night. Didn't have it on the sign. But a lady was coming out of the church building, and so I said, excuse me, ma'am, but when does prayer meeting start here on Wednesday nights? She said, you know, I, can't, I don't know. She said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. She said, when the pastor came out to talk to us about joining the church, we told him that we weren't going to be Wednesday nighters or Sunday nighters. We just didn't do that. But if, you know, if you'll accept us for coming on Sundays, she said, that's what we'll do. And, and said, the preacher said we'd be glad to get us. Well, what is the bare minimum? The kingdom's not made up of folks who are satisfied doing what they're supposed to do. The kingdom is made up of people who regret not being able to do all they want to do. Well, the kingdom is not doing what is required. This is the kingdom of the second mile. And so Robert Naylor said, I can't wait to go the second mile with the Lord. It's the most unique and exciting thing I have ever done. And so when I leave on early in the morning from Lipan, Texas, to drive into the seminary early, had an 8 o'clock class, it's 55 miles one way. As I motored out of town, headed up toward the seminary, I passed this little bungalow. Inside that little bungalow lived a woman with three children. She was a single parent. And her light would always be on when I was headed out early in the morning to the seminary. She'd have those little kids in Sunday school and church on Sunday sitting on the second row. Little cheeks looked like polished radishes. Clothes pressed and shine. You think that that mother ever said, I wish I didn't have to work so hard for these kids. I'm getting so tired having to do all this. I wish that somebody else would take them for a while. I'm tired of it. No, she never said that. You know what she said every time I talked to her? I wish I could do more for my kids. I just regret that I'm not able to give them more. I want to give them everything every other kid has. The deeper meaning of this is, is that doing your duty is not enough. I don't suppose there are very many people here this morning who would have the audacity to say you do everything the Lord's commanded you to do. Not many of us are willing to say that. And to say that is not enough, he said. And did you notice what happens here? He said that 
he implies that the people who do what is required of them expect to be commended for it. That's what we do. We get up on Sunday morning and thank folks for coming to Sunday school. Boy, we're glad you folks. Congratulations, man. We're, we appreciate you coming. Well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And if somebody has, a, you know, the nerve to be a tither, we pat him on the back for six months. This guy's a tither. Well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And if somebody dares come out to visit on Monday night, you know what we do with him? We put his name in the messenger under a, in a column under the title Honor Roll. What honor is that? Doing what you're supposed to do. And I was reading just a couple of weeks ago the story of the rich young ruler trying to get a sermon out of that. Listen to this. I've never heard this before, so this is certainly not plagiarism. I was reading the story of the rich young ruler. You know the guy, don't you, of the ruling class, young, had it all together. And Jesus said, you know what you're supposed to do? He said, I've already done that. I've kept the commandments from my youth. When we read that, we say, oh, yeah, sure, ministerially speaking. Nobody keeps the commandments from his youth. That's not possible. That's what we say when we read that, isn't it? This is yes. Say this. That's what we do. And, and, and so Jesus said to him, he said, well, you know, you kept the commandments from you. Okay, this is what you do. You sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the guy went away sorrowful for he had much possessions. And Jesus was sorrowful because he loved him. And I was reading that and all of a sudden it just, light came on. That Jesus wasn't congratulating him because he kept the commandments. He didn't challenge him for that. He didn't congratulate him for, keep, for, for keeping the commandments from his youth. It broke his heart that that was all he was willing to do. And it may be that the sorrow of God is not that we don't keep the commandments. Maybe the sorrow of God is, is that that's all we're willing to do. For when we do what is required, it's not enough. Duty is insufficient. Point number three, and there are three points. This is your favorite one, point three. Demand is inexhaustible. Now watch this carefully. Jesus makes it clear that it's not easy to follow him. He already, he's already told us up front in chapter 14 what it costs to follow him. He said, nobody can be my disciple until he's willing to forsake everything. Now Bonhoeffer said, if you're looking for a religion that's nice and easy, I don't recommend Christianity. For Christianity, Jesus makes it clear that to follow Him, the terms of following Him, are forsaking all. Every great leader makes clear the terms, the requirements of his leadership. Tennyson has King Arthur. Uh, explaining or describing 
the demands of the vows he makes on his knights when he says, when they rose, arose, knighted from kneeling. Some were as pale as if at the passing of a ghost. Others were flushed, and some were half-dazed as one awakened from sleep by the coming of a light. Shocked, that's what he's saying. Now I'm sure that a young man dying on a battlefield somewhere didn't realize that when he made his pledge of allegiance to the flag that it would ever come to that, to die on a battlefield. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus makes it very, very clear what it means to pledge your allegiance to him. It costs you your life. Now, he invited everybody to follow him, but he warned everybody, don't you do it unless you're willing to count the cost and pay the price. As Tiliki said, discipleship is not touching the horns of the altar with your little finger. It is the commitment of your life and everything within it to Him. That's the cost. Whether you knew it or not, when you walked down an aisle and gave your heart to Jesus, you sold out to Him lock, stock, and barrel. I'm sorry if you were not told that ahead of time. Now, I want to spend about five minutes talking to those of you who have no hair or gray hair. Little joke. Very little. I want to talk to my friends who are in this congregation or watching on television who are at the evening time of life. Or I want you to notice something in this story. That when the slave came in from the field, the master did not say to him, sit down here, guy, I'm going to feed you. What he said to him was, go get washed up and fix my meal for me and change clothes, you don't smell good. Because you're not, your work is not done just because you're at the end of the day, there's an evening work yet to do. You know, see what I'm saying? You, you, you get my drift? You know where I'm going with this? There's no place to stop, in other words. There's no room to quit. It is not possible for a person to be justified in saying, I've served my time, I've done my work, now I'm going to let somebody else do it. For there is no place for quitting. I hear it often. I've been a deacon all these years. Now we'll let some of these new blood. We, what does that mean, new blood? We'll let this new blood do it. I've taught Sunday school. I'm going to let somebody else. I'm going to take a rest. There is no place for quitting. In, in fact, he says, in, he says this. What he's saying is this that there is an evening work for you. You've been out there in the heat all day, plodding up and down the furrows? Great. Well, let me tell you something. Now that you've come to the evening time, there's even, watch this, there is even a greater work for you. You can now serve me. 
you can now, you hear that? Serve me. I love the words of um, General Douglas MacArthur, who at the age of 78 said, Growing old is not a matter of living a number of years. Growing old is forsaking your ideals. For years may wrinkle your skin, but to lose interests will wrinkle your soul. And so there's Caleb at the age of 85 saying, give me that mountain. Hey, well, they're Amalekites. I don't care. I want that mountain. I want the challenge of that. And there's Anna, the widow, who's 85, who still had enough energy to look for the Messiah and enough vision to recognize him when she saw him. And there is John, the beloved, the old man. This guy's almost 100. Has to be. Surely now it's time he can quit and retire and rest. Don't tell that to God. Don't tell that to John. There's one more book to be written. And so he sends him out on the Isle of Patmos, which was to be a, an island of isolation. It became an island of inspiration. And he sent him out there to write the last book. And I have a feeling that everything that lit, went on prior to, his, to that was preparatory to that. Listen to me. Could it be possible that everything that has happened to you who are living in the evening of life, everything that has happened to you up to this time in your life is preparatory to what God wants of you now? This evening work. Exciting. To catch the words of Browning, grow Come grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last for which the first was made. What he was saying is, is that this last work is the work that God has planned for you for all along and everything has been preparatory to that. Oh man, does that give you some reason to go on living? Those of you who are old, like me. And so after the war... He said to Churchill, why don't you just now lay down it all and take a, you, you deserve a rest. He didn't lay it down. In fact, he took up a pen and won the Nobel Prize for literature at the age of, of 79. At the age of 92, somebody asked Oliver Wendell Holmes why he started, why he took up the study of Greek. And the old guy said, well, it's now or never. I love the answer. J.C. Penney was 95 when he said, My eyesight is diminishing, but my vision is increasing. And they found the note that Michelangelo had written his apprentice. And in the handwriting of an old man, he wrote, Draw, Antonio, draw, and don't waste time. For what you got here is, that the destination of one's life, the end of one's life, is what this whole thing is about. Now, I'm not necessarily in agreement with a person who says, well, we're all working for the same place. I'm not, I'm not ready to go along with that quiet, but I am ready to say this, that this destination to which we're all moving is what is the goal, and everything is preparatory to that, to the end work. You know what I'm saying? You hear this? 
I'm trying my best to get something out over there across the airways there in the distance. I was, uh, this is it, this is a month through. I was riding down the road the other day listening to a talk show and they came on with a, an, a, an, a, an advertisement about the, the fact that one of the airlines had started a, a new promotion called Surprise Trip. Now the surprise trip is, is that you go down to the airline, the tourist agency, whatever, and pay money and they, then they give you a ticket to where you're going. <laughs> you, you didn't know you get your ticket. You know, so, I mean, surprise. And, and at a drastically reduced rate, you could go down, put out your cash, and get a trip to somewhere you didn't know where you were going. Now, is that crazy or what? I mean, and, 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 and these, the fact is, is that it started in Minneapolis and they just got lines of people down there dishing out their money to somewhere they didn't know where they were going. They, they found out after they got there, I guess. Well, here I am. <laughs> where am I? Now, uh, one, of the, one of the goofiest things I've ever heard of is spending your money going somewhere you don't know where you're going. For it seems like that we need to know where we're going and then put the time and the energy and the money into that. I'm here to tell you this morning, listen to me. Everybody is headed, everybody has a rendezvous with death. And there is a bema before which everyone stands. Now that is a destination we have absolute certainty about. And what he's saying in this text is this. You better be working to the last minute of that because the end work is as vital as the beginning. No place to quit. Demand is inexhaustible. Duty is inescapable. Debt is impossible. Let's pray. God, I want us to do what you want us to do today, but I want us to want to do more than that and not resent whatever your, heart, whatever your voice says to our heart, but delight in the sacrifice, whatever it is, if it means to be baptized, if it means to give our life and witness around the world, if it means to surrender our possessions, Lord, that we not do it out of reluctance, out of necessity, but that we do it with a joy of doing more than the minimum. On the basis of all you've done for us, Father, help us to be willing to do for you right now in this service. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. In the spirit of prayer, look here. An invitation is an opportunity for you to respond publicly to what God has spoken to you about in your heart. I pray that you'll respond in a positive way while we stand to sing.